Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. This show has been pre-recorded on Thursday, December 16th, to be aired live on Monday, December 21st, 2020, at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Live in Austin, Texas, on KOOP 91.7 FM, and streaming live at coop.org. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 35th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, are you ready to go to war? Pedro Gatos in Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis has been investigating and seeking to present genuine, truth-seeking perspective to U.S. foreign policy impacts around the world since we began broadcasting on Co-op Radio in 2002. Over the past 18 years, our record speaks to the veracity of our reporting. The impact of U.S. foreign policy in the world, on the world, population, is unrivaled in reach and in impact. Our presumption is that the U.S. population is a compassionate and social justice-driven people, that if we knew the truth or if we know the truth of the matter, we support policies that promote the most fair and democratic outcomes. The problem is too often we are misinformed by our government and our mainstream media. Tonight's show's focus is to continue to examine emerging new members of Joe Biden's cabinet by examining Samantha Power and her likely U.S. aid appointment, as well as U.S. foreign policy in general and recent outcomes in Libya and Yemen by the esteemed author, lawyer, and guest, Dan Kovalik. Stay tuned. Enjoy. Okay, welcome. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness Monday news and analysis from the capital city of Austin, Texas. This is 91.7 FM KOOP radio and streaming live at koop.org. We are recording this show on Thursday, December 17th, 2020 to be aired live on Monday, December 21st, 2020. This is your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are blessed to be with our guest, Daniel Kovalik. And Daniel, thank you for joining us. Great. So happy to be here. Well, it's really great to have you. Just a couple of words about our guest. He graduated from the Columbia University School of Law back in 1993. He's worked in representing the United Steelworkers, AFL-CIO, until 2019. He's done tremendous work in the issues of international human rights. And I hope we have time to find out a little bit about your course, too, because the idea of an international human rights law, you know, I remember going to college, the sound of a, of a class was always nice, but it was really the professor that either made it or didn't make it. So be interested in your emphasis there. 
Mr. Kovalik, he received the David W. Mills Mentoring Fellowship from Stanford University School of Law and was a recipient of the Project Censored Award for his article exposing trade unionists in Colombia. He's written extensively on the issue of international human rights and U.S. foreign policy for the Huffington Post and Counterpunch and has lectured throughout the world on these subjects. Importantly, he is also the author of several books, including his most recent, The Plot to Overthrow Venezuela, How the U.S. is Orchestrating a Coup for Oil, which includes a foreword by Oliver Stone. So again, Daniel, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Let me just share briefly. Last week, we discussed in some depth that since 2018, the Cuba International Medical Cooperation Program had been under attack by the United States. It was a slanderous attack, and it was slanderous because it was false, uh, false misrepresentations on how it was characterized as a program and neglecting the truth of how profoundly it has improved the health profiles of millions worldwide. The Cuban Foreign Ministry back in August of 2019, indicated that funds from the United States Agency for International Development, which, which will be a focus of this show, the USAID, are used in a plan designed to finance actions and search for information to discredit and sabotage international cooperation. Also, the statement included that there were crude pressures exerted against several governments to hinder Cuban cooperation abroad in their medical program. And this medical program, of course, is one of their main sources of income. So this USAID campaign had millions of dollars in funds and the complicity of several of the big media. And this is a concept that we talk a lot about on the show because of its importance, but it's, it's one that we learned from Malcolm X, which is image making, creating false images of what's really going on in the world to get our population to maybe back interventions that are not worthy of being backed and, and such. But also, there's been recent media reports that indicate that Joe Biden is considering naming Samantha Power to head the United States Agency for International Development. So we want to spend some time on Samantha Power and a little bit more time on, on the U.S. aid. But I remember in the El Salvadoran Civil War, it included brutal generals and their death squads against an indigenous uprising that was inspired by really unlivable working conditions for the majority population back in the 1980s. And this went on for a decade and a half or so before a peace accord occurred. The United States Agency for International Development was an arm of, of that intervention. It steered people away from the FMLN and the profound changes needed to ameliorate the decades of suffering we were told that these monies were funding pro-democracy interests, but instead they were working against the tide of needed change. And we've been talking about that on the show, how we tend to, as a pattern, as a measurable empirical fact, that when you look at our interventions throughout the world, we're almost always backing the types of governments that bring poor quality of life to the majority populations after the quote-unquote successful intervention or successful coup has transpired as desired by U.S. foreign policy. But the U.S. organizations like National Endowment for Democracy and the United States Agency for International Development have meddled in other countries' affairs since their founding back in the 1980s. There's a piece that did a good job of covering it by Raul Antonio Capote back in July of 2018. And I wanted to just highlight a couple of those observations and then turn to our discussion. And some of them were actually from Max Blumenthal, that he had written a piece on the National Endowment for Democracy and such. 
when he talks about the United States Agency for International Development later, it was supplemented by the National Endowment for Democracy. And Max Blumenthal and others have described the real nature and interests of the NED. Quote, the NED is a leading agent of U.S. soft power that has meddled in other countries' affairs since its founding at the height of the Cold War in 1983. And the author cites Alan Weinstein, which is a well-known quote now for those that study these issues, he was a founder of the National Endowment for Democracy in 1991. He said this, he said, a lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA. So here's a founder admitting to what we are proposing is the actual goal and what drives these groups. But the budget with with, uh, with which the NED operates comes from the United States Congress, and it grants millions of dollars every couple of years as part of its State Department budget. And the organization also receives donations from different associations. And there's just a whole infrastructure that kind of camouflages the total amount and, 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 and to what degree civil society is penetrated. But the report from Blumenthal indicated, quote, aside from the NED, the, the USAID has been the most active promoter of regime change against leftist governments in Latin America. In Nicaragua, its uh, budget topped $5.2 million in 2018, with most of the funding towards training civil society and media organizations. And so just one other thing, they even mentioned in this article what I had studied independently for years, and I'm just going to take it right from this article that we're talking about from Raul Antonio Capote, Nicaragua is now the target, is the name of the article in July of 2018. Let's not forget that this is also the same U.S. aid that financed the training of death squads, promoted health programs that concealed inhumane sterilization processes in Central America, and collaborated with CIA narco agents in the Iran-Contra operation. So, this USAID has created an extensive network on our continent. It manufactures leaders of groups and penetrates civil society. A true interventionist army of quote-unquote experts, advisors, and consultants working to develop its subversive plans. At the end of the day, there's more than $200 million in the first 10 years alone for NED in 1,500 projects that result in the attempts to destabilize those countries that choose through their own sovereign rights choices to pursue a path that the United States does not agree with. And so with that introduction, Dan, just a few words from a legal background that you have, but the issue of the way we have historically tried to divert from invasion to manipulation through civil society, through illegal funding and penetration of civil societies of third nations. I just can't imagine what our public would think if Russia or Venezuela, you know, was funding a, you know, a political party in the United States and feeding it the types of propaganda it felt was appropriate. Can you briefly comment on that? Yeah, well, that's a great point. I mean, first of all, that would be illegal under U.S. law, right? Uh, under U.S. law, Political parties cannot accept foreign monies uh, for campaigns, right? Mm -hmm. But the U.S. does not apply that same prohibition when it comes to how it treats other countries. And so, first of all, we have to go back a little bit, if I might, to where this began. I mean, really, the U.S. started to engage in these more covert regime changes uh, beginning after World War II. And the first big regime change the U.S. was involved in you know, again, in a covert way as opposed to a 
you know, overt intervention, military intervention, was in Iran in 1953. And that was carried out by the CIA. The CIA helped overthrow a democratic prime minister in Mohammad Mosaddegh because he wanted to use Iranian oil for the Iranian people. And that was not what Britain wanted, who had controlled Iranian oil up to that point in the 20th century. And ultimately, the U.S. wanted control of that oil as well. And so the CIA in 1953 began these very nefarious policies of regime change. In Iran in 53, then in 1954, they helped overthrow the government, democratically elected government of President Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala. And that was done in the interest of United Fruit, who did not want to sell to the government of Arbenz their uncultivated land, which is what Arbenz wanted to do. He wanted to buy land uh, that was not being used and at market rates, so that he could give it to peasants to cultivate. And United Fruit, which is now known as Chiquita Brands International, didn't want that. And so the CIA overthrew the government there of Jacobo Arbenz, helped set up a military dictatorship that killed at least 200,000 people, mm-hmm. mostly Mayan Indians, right? So as you indicate, with the overthrow of the democratically elected Jacoby Arbenz through a coup in 1954 in Guatemala, the U.S. brought to power a series of military dictatorships that collectively through the 60s through the 80s killed more than 200,000 Guatemalans, predominantly Mayan Indian, you know, of course, largely unreported. The book Bitter Fruit by Stephen Schlesinger and Stephen Kinzer is a must read because it reveals the incestuous relationship between private interests and the U.S. government that serves them. It reveals the nature of our foreign policy. It is a foreign policy on behalf of multinational companies such as United Fruit. And the book reveals and documents amazing insights. It details what our guest has just been highlighting. We hear time and time again that we are fighting communism is why we intervene in other nations, such as was the claim in Guatemala at the time, when in fact, the truth is we use our military and covert operations to help put into power governments that line the pockets of U.S. investment capital. In other words, multinational corporations such as United Fruit Company. The authors explain United Fruit Company always left large amounts of its land uncultivated at the time in 1953. They had some 550,000 acres of prime real estate in Guatemala. 85% of its land was unused. Only as many bananas were grown as could be sold abroad. On page 76 of the book, Bitter Fruit, in compensation for the seized property, the government offered some $627,500 in bonds based on United Fruit's declared tax value of the land. United Fruit, like other large landowners, had historically undervalued its property in official declarations in order to reduce its already insignificant tax liability. But now that the declared value was being used to determine compensation, the company howled in protest. On April 20th, 1954, a formal complaint was delivered to Guatemala's authorities, not by United Fruit, but by the U.S. State Department whose top officials beginning with Secretary of State John Foster Dulles himself had close ties to the company, end quote. 
Let me elaborate just quickly on, on some of the close ties. The family of John Morse Cabot, uh, he was the Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs at the time, owned significant stock in United Fruit Company. His brother, Thomas, had actually served as president of United Fruit Company in 1948. UN ambassador, our ambassador to the UN, Henry Cabot Lodge, a former senator, was a, his family was a huge stockholder and vigorous United Fruit Company defender on the Senate floor as a Massachusetts senator. The wife of United Fruit Company's PR director, Edmund Whitman, was President Eisenhower's secretary, personal secretary. So John Foster Dulles, he was Secretary of State from 1953 to 1959. This is during the, the U.S.-led, the U.S.-engineered coup. 1954 period, of course, in Guatemala. You know, our beans had been voted in in 1951. The coup was in 1954. And meanwhile, his brother, Alan Dulles, oversaw the Guatemalan coup as the CIA director. Now, he was CIA director from 1953 to 1961. Both John Dulles and Alan Dulles had worked on behalf of a New York law firm, Sullivan and Cromwell, that had done significant work financially on behalf of United Fruit Company. So this book is really worth looking at if you want to understand what our foreign policy is really about. So I think with that important history, Dan, please continue with your with your recounting of the CIA activities in, in our hemisphere. And so the CIA would go on and they would try to kill Fidel Castro, right? And they would overthrow the government in Brazil in 1964 and set up a military dictatorship, and they would overthrow Allende in 1973 and set up the fascist regime of Pinochet. And the list goes on. And then what happened was, in the 70s, you had this very progressive senator called Frank Church, who did some major hearings of the CIA and their assassination programs, regime change programs, and the CIA was hugely embarrassed. And so, after those hearings... The government decided, and this started to happen under Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, to take at least some, in fact most, of regime change and covert op duties from the CIA and give them to someone else. So essentially, okay, the CIA was now this... So, you know, excuse me, Dan, so what you're, ex what you're explaining is kind of the evolution of tactics. The interest is the same, is to get whoever we want into power, into power, but the methods are changing over these decades that you're talking about. A little bit, and it's not even so much methods, it's just more, you know, who's doing it. So the CIA now has this horrible reputation after the church hearing, so they say, okay, let's just create another organization or a couple more to just do what they were doing. So they created the National Endowment for Democracy and USAID, and they said, okay, we'll just give the regime change, mm -hmm. you know, program over to them. And that's what they did. And so they essentially took over, again, most of the CIA's work right, to start right. overthrowing governments. Right. So I guess, I guess what I was trying to allude to is the fact that in the 50s and in the 60s, you know, we had these more overt military CIA-led campaigns. Eventually, as it gets into the 1970s and 80s, we try to be a little more subtle by trying to penetrate civil society more with people like Philip Agee's work explaining to what depth, and, and your comments already, explaining quite a bit about that. So it's almost like the toolbox is getting greater with the n different ways to intervene 
because at the end of the day, you know, we won't be afraid to intervene militarily like we did in, you know, in Iraq and Libya and stuff. But I don't mean to interrupt you, but just wanted to highlight that important, what I think is kind of an evolution of tactics without a change of the desires of foreign policy. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, like in Latin America, all of this is still going back to the Monroe Doctrine, right? That, that the U.S. can intervene at will in these countries to pursue its own economic and geopolitical interests. And as you say, some of the tactics change, some of the names change, some of the organizations change, but the goal is always the same. Right. And that is to control these countries. And so in the beginning in the 80s, these organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy and USAID begin to engage in you know, more subtle forms of regime change programs. Mm-hmm. Again, funding these opposition parties. They tend to be right-wing that oppose social program in these countries and land distribution, which is so critical in, in the developing world. And they're very effective in helping to overthrow various governments. So if we bring this to the present time, we look at countries like Nicaragua, which is where I really had my political wake, awakening in the 1980s. And there, the USAID and NED are funding all sorts of these civil society groups to try to overthrow the Sandinista government, which has done so much for the population of Nicaragua, has really helped the poor, has helped the indigenous peoples, have helped women. In fact, incredibly, the UN ranked Nicaragua as fifth in the world, fifth for gender equality, only after four countries in Europe right? Your usual suspects, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, way above the U.S., by the way. And the NED and the USAID have funded various groups that, frankly, have carried out very violent acts in Nicaragua, particularly in the summer of 2018. And I actually made a movie about this called Nicaragua, the April Crisis and Beyond. They were funding groups that were killing Sandinistas at all levels, trying to wipe out the history of the Sandinista Revolution, which overthrew, if I need to remind people, overthrew the U.S.-backed dictatorship of Anastasio Somoza in 1979. Yeah, if I could just say, you're speaking about a really important period because this was the period of this image-making again, where where we called it, uh, it as John Bolton and Pompeo and the Troika tyranny. These three countries, Nicaragua, this is 2018 period now we're, we're talking about, uh, alluding to Nicaragua, Cuba, and what was the third country? Venezuela. Venezuela, of course, of course. Very, very good. It's the image making to the American public so that if there was a military invasion or something like that, it might be more palatable than it otherwise would be. Although, thankfully, it never progressed that much. But in Nicaragua, there was allies against the Sandinistas that were in the conservative Catholic Church, if I remember right. And this, this history is just glossed over. And so please continue to elucidate it for us. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Well, so the point is, you know, again, the CIA and then USAID and the National Endowment for Democracy all had the goal of overthrowing governments that were using their country's resources for their people instead of allowing those resources to be captured by U.S. corporations, right? So in Venezuela, 
the U.S. was upset that Hugo Chavez, beginning in 1999, started to nationalize the oil companies then, which had been controlled for 100 years by U.S. corporations, and started to use those to alleviate poverty and extreme poverty. Even the World Bank and International Monetary Fund acknowledged this, that Chavez was using his oil revenues to improve the standard of living for the poorest of the poor in Venezuela. And that was exactly what the U.S. did not want to happen, right? So almost immediately after Chavez took power in 1999, through free and fair elections, by the way, because sometimes you'll read in the press, oh, he came to power through a coup or something, which is not true. The U.S. started to try to overthrow him and did, in fact. Again, Gore Vidal said the U.S. is the United States of amnesia. Right. (laughs) And we forget these things. Right. So in 2002, April of 2002, the NED, through its backing of various forces in Venezuela, overthrew the Chavez government. He was kidnapped by sectors in the military, taken to a military outpost on an island off offshore Venezuela. And the right wing was put in power for about two and a half days. And when they came to power, they took the Constitution that had been ratified through popular referendum, and they said, that's out the window. And they disbanded the Supreme Court. They disbanded the National Assembly. Essentially, they set up a dictatorship within 24 hours, right? Mm -hmm. And the New York Times and other so-called liberal press agencies said, oh, democracy has now sprung in Venezuela. Meanwhile, the poor people in Venezuela come down from the hills, from the the barrios, right? And they demand that Chavez is brought back. And he is ultimately, through the power of these people, brought back to power. And he continues his program of helping the poor in Venezuela. But again, the U.S.'s attempt to overthrow him through these soft power agencies like the NED and USAID continue to this day. Now, of course, they're trying to overthrow his successor, Nicolas Maduro, who was elected in 2013. Dan, if I can get you to just hang on for a moment, we need to take a quick break. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is the premier community radio station of the nation. We need to take a short break. We'll be back with our guest, Dan Kovalik, right after this brief pause. 